I'm Sean McCormick, and this is Optimal Performance. But I'm going to tell you, probably one of the most well-researched, understood, and supported off-label drugs today is low-dose naltrexone, you know? And, and addiction, person, you know, like addictive personalities, like suddenly you're not needing to reach for the exogenous, you know, things to feed the, feed the sugar craving, feed, feed the sex addiction, feed the heroin addiction, whatever it is, suddenly there's like this natural endorphin high that's happening. You can see it's got far-reaching implications, and the beauty is it's not contraindicated with standard of care. Three main disease states that are associated with low endorphins, anxiety, stress response gone amok, migraine, and IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. That everyone is Dr. Nasha Winters. She's the author of The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. She's also an expert in something called low-dose naltrexone. Now, if you are a listener to this podcast regularly, you know that I am a major skeptic of big pharma and how pharmaceuticals and prescriptive drugs are often not what we think they are and they have gnarly side effects. Lifestyle changes are better. But this one thing, this low-dose naltrexone, is has all of these applications we talk about how it started how it was discovered where it's used and how it might apply to you we also talk about some really incredible approaches that she has found and her colleagues around covid recovery long hauler syndrome recovery and jab injury recovery really important topics that i think are going to apply to a lot of us in the very beginning of the episode we talk about how chat gpt is fairly insufficient when it comes to health suggestions you know, the, the, the low-dose naltrexone stuff starts about halfway through, and then toward the end, we talk about uh, the jab stuff, and then later, we talk about the metabolic approach to cancer. She is a wealth of knowledge. She's super fun to listen to, and I know you're going to enjoy this episode. Just a few more things before we dive in. As always, you can find me on Instagram, which is the platform I use the most frequently, at McCormick. And also, if you haven't already, sign up for What's Up Wednesday. It's a weekly newsletter where I give you five joyful, wonderful nuggets of wisdom in a short-form email newsletter that you can use in your life including discounts for biohacking equipment and products that I love and that I have researched and tested myself. Okay, let's jump into it. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Dr. Nasha Winters. And I'm here with Dr. Nasha Winters. She's the author of The Metabolic Approach to Cancer, and you just listed off a whole bunch of other cool things that you do. Uh, Dr. Nasha, welcome to the Optimal Performance Podcast. So good to be here, Sean. Thank you. I, li I like that we have so many people and interests in common. It's fun to be here. Yeah, this is the right this is the right conversation and I love having these on Mondays cuz it really just like opens the brain up, right? Like yeah. So, I I want to start I actually I, I I this is a major curveball because we I didn't had zero intention of talking about chat GPT, but you shared with me something that I found fascinating that we know we we can assume that chat GPT has biases, you know, and and if anyone who's following along uh, on what it is and what it does that, you know, that's an understand it's an algorithm. And so it's going to, it's going to lean in certain different ways. If you could maybe, because you're, you're, you've just been tinkering around with it. If you could maybe give everybody uh, a little bit of explanation on what it is and how you're using it from either a clinical or, you know, medical approach. And then what you shared with me just now, that would be a great place to start. 
Sure. So, you know, for, for those of you, of your listeners here, um, it caught my attention a couple months ago when I saw that the chat GPT beat out a few medical students and actually passing the USMLE boards, which is basically your medical boards. And so I was like, what is this AI, you know, and I got curious and I've had a lot, I mean, there's been a ton of people talking about it out there. And so internally in our world, because we are kind of out of the box thinkers with regards to healthcare in general and cancer in particular, we were just kind of playing around with some of our, we're getting ready to update uh, or actually getting ready to repost an updated website. And so we were trying to update some content and we're taking very heady kind of biochemical concepts and trying to make them user-friendly. So we were hearing about the pros of ChatGPT that this could be a way to take these concepts and simplify them for the average consumer. Well, we weren't quite expecting, we should have, but we weren't expecting when we started plugging in things like metabolic approach to various diseases, even though I focus on metabolic approach to cancer, all of our chronic illnesses today are um, at the heart and soul or at the mitochondrial level are metabolic disorders. So we started playing with how would you describe um, um, the metabolic, uh, you know, mishaps of autism or of, you know, various conditions, cardiovascular disease. And it literally started coming back and censoring every single thing we were saying left and right saying, you know, autism isn't a metabolic disease, cardiovascular disease isn't a metabolic disease, cancer isn't a metabolic disease. Really, I was even telling you beforehand, even when we plugged in diabetes, it basically was like, well, there's not enough data. Like diabetes, the only thing it would really stay true to as a metabolic disease was obesity. And we now know that there's even entire fields of metabolic oncology, metabolic psychiatry, opening up metabolic cardiology. And so it st still shows us there is a lot of censorship in a, a, in a full-on trying to change the paradigm of healthcare today. So we decided at that moment, we will be scrapping the chat GPT from any evaluations because it's clearly biased. So yeah, there was Have that. You that is, I mean, it's shock. It's shocking to yeah. me. I mean, I think for for even uh, you know, dumb dumb AI that they don't maybe not understand or have seen enough of a trend or a a a forefront conversation that links, um, you know, metabolic disorders to autism, right? Like you and I understand that you obviously more than I do, but there there's something there, right? Um, and but to to not recognize or acknowledge the connection between metabolic disorders, metabolic disease, and diabetes is like that is so shocking to yeah. me. Yeah. And my my question is, you know, because it's open, right? There's this idea that we can actually feed new information into the system to help sway, or 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 maybe not sway, maybe that's not the right word, but to educate or inform yes. or empower the platform so that it does know the connection, dum dum, between metabolic disease and diabetes, etc. Like, did is any part of you was like, oh my gosh, now I have to be a be an AI developer, like oh, now. Boy. <laughs> Great, Sean. Now you give me something else to do in my spare time. But you know, that is very interesting. I forget that it's that it's it's taking cues from the rest of us. And so, or theoretically should be. Um, and so my hope is perhaps because there is a growing number of us out there starting to understand the implications of metabolic you know, impact on our health. And just a quick little side note, again, for your listeners in 2018, a Chapel Hill study out of North Carolina showed that only 88% of Americans were metabolically healthy. 
And so what that means specifically is they're at risk that other 12% um, are the only ones not at risk for developing a metabolic condition. Well, fast forward to July of 2022, we've actually turned that statistic into 93% of Americans are not metabolically healthy. And so right there, we know this is a big deal. We have the data to show that this is a big deal. And yet all of our medical systems, all of our insurance modeling, our billing systems, they're all based on other algorithms and other diagnoses and other perceptions and understandings. And so we're not catching up with what the reality is to how we're still sort of billing for it or researching around it. So will we be able to change these algorithms? I don't know. I mean, that would be interesting if I could get all my colleagues to get in there and start to say, actually, these are metabolic conditions and here's why, and here's the research and here's the data. Maybe we can, but that's that's a lot. So Sean, yeah. I'm going to have to go back to the drawing board on that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't expect you to, you know, uh, rally a coup to. You, I'm uh, in, you go- I'm down with it though. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Uh, that's it's just really fascinating to me yeah. you know as we and we don't have to stay here too long but it's just an interesting place to start is is that it it drives home this point for for me and I and I know my listeners that we have to look outside of the box we have to do our own research we have to be willing to learn from uh, various sources and to with our own informed consent make decisions that are best for us right and and that goes from you know low dose naltrexone to the carnivore diet there's right. all these things that might be amazing for you that might totally change your health but it 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 when 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 the sort of wave of information and and now you know ai is uh, slow on the come up. We can't, we just can't rely on, on this sort of typical standards of, of information gathering. We have to look outside the box. So I, I said the, I said the buzzword and, and really the, the, the reason why I reached out initially to, to have you on is because I would like to talk about low dose naltrexone and I know so very little of it, but I, I, I initially reached out because I had two different coaching clients of mine who said, listen, you know, they're listeners of the podcast as well. And they're like, you should do an episode on low dose naltrexone. And I said, I have no idea what that is. I've never heard of it. And they, and both of them said it has made a, an, a, a total 180 on my mood, on my health, on my energy, on my outlook, all of this stuff. And so I'm just sort of like opening up this Pandora's box for this topic if you could start at like the third grade, that is an insulting question, but to start at like the third grade level of what low dose naltrexone, what naltrexone is, what low dose naltrexone is, and what are the potential applications for people? Wow. This is so exciting. I, I get because this is actually one of the, one of the medicines out there that even, even I'm a naturopathic doctor. So a lot of people assume I would never prescribe a pharmaceutical. This would be the go-to pharmaceutical to prescribe. And I have been um, since, since 2000, right? So 23 plus years of prescribing this as an off-label drug as low dose naltrexone. Historically though, let's give context to your listeners. In 1984, naltrexone was sort of discovered and was put out into the world as an opiate antagonist, okay? What that means is blocking opiate overdose experiences. 
Mm. Right. So a lot of people might remember it's not quite the same, but similar because it has that same antagonist concept with like the Pulp Fiction moment where they put the jab, the needle into the fourth intercostal space and bring the woman up who just OD'd on heroin. Um, that's that's where it kind of started was in that environment mm. in the 1980s. It was used for home, um, heroin um, overdose and heroin addictions and in doses of anywhere from 50 milligrams up to 300 milligrams. It's incredibly powerful to protect someone from overdose and bring them out of overdose and also to negate um, heroin, like to help them move out of a heroin addiction state. Here's the caveat though. And what they learned also early on in the, 1980, in the mid 1980s was that people taking anywhere from 50 to higher doses, 50 milligrams to higher doses of this, they felt awful. They felt terrible. The reason being is because it binds to the opiate receptor and shuts down your ability to feel your endorphins. So whether you were experiencing that in exogenously from heroin, right? And that's where people were obviously reaching for heroin is because they were kind of endorphin depleted, you know, or deficient. So they were looking for that high, that endorphin rush, um, you know, or, or they were already someone who might have had maybe an opiate overdose from a properly prescribed drug who then moved into the psychological breakdown that endorphin suppression creates, which leads to massive levels of depression, of anxiety, of pain, of poor perception, of poor decision-making, as well as just a, a literal lack of quality of life and connection. So, you know, here's this drug that's like, great, it can save your life, but for what, mm. right? So that's how it came to be. Now, I love how you started talking about need to think out of the box. So someone at that time was a keen observer of this process. And this is Dr. Bihari, who died in 2010. And I was able to mentor with him in the uh, late 90s when I was working in an HIV and AIDS clinic in Arizona. And he came and taught us how to use this medicine in that practice. But before that, in the 1980s, in the height of, um, he lived in New York City, and he tended to a lot of heroin addicts. But he also saw a very interesting thing happening. He noticed that um, there was also a, a growing number of addicts, of heroin addicts and AIDS, um, AIDS population. So it's like chicken or egg. He wasn't quite sure. But one of the things they started to learn in the early uh, to mid 1980s was that people diagnosed with AIDS had about 30 to 50% less endorphins than those without AIDS. Hmm. Something, here's the keen observer thinking outside the box, right? This is a time when everyone is terrified of AIDS, right? This is like the whole world is freaking out and no one's, and so Dr. Bihari is paying attention, he's observing. And he's starting to wonder, well, what's, what's, what's happening here? Because he'd have patients go on the, 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 you know, the LDN at its higher dose. And there would be like a moment where they felt a little bit better, but then it would crash and it would be worse than it was before. So he started playing with the dose, realizing we need to suppress, we need to block the opiates without also blocking the endorphins. We actually need to raise the endorphins. This is before he understood the immune connection. And so he started noticing that you 50 milligrams, 20 milligrams, 10 milligrams, five milligrams, you could get the same impact of blocking the opiate receptors that you would at the high, high doses. And he started to notice that the lower dose you'd go, 
you'd also not then suppress the endorphin experience. In mm. fact, what happened at the lowest doses somewhere, and again, this is all, you guys, this is all like trial and error, right? This was, this was just someone in a midst of time when there was no time to do the research that he was just using his patients that were all dying anyway <laughs> to figure out what was going to work best. So it, what he found was doses of 1.5 to 4.5 milligrams, somewhere in there, there's a sweet spot for just about everybody. When you get that low, you still can negate the impact of the exogenous opiates without negating the impact of your endogenous, the inside of you opiates. And what was super cool is it has a very short half-life, three to six hours is how long that drug is working. And so when you put in the low dose, you block those receptors for that short period of time. And then what happens is it's like the receptors bloom. They open up, they become more plentiful, they become more able to sort of receive and bind endogenous opiates, you know, or endogenous um, endorphins, and the patient's experience changes. So now, instead of wanting to reach for their next high from opium, heroin, fentanyl, you know, we're talking in these terms today, suddenly they were starting to resource within. They were starting to actually access their endogenous supply of endorphins. This was a game changer. So here you have patients that are having, you know, they're coming off the drugs or coming off the addiction, but they're also starting to get benefit in how they feel without that. And then the secondary benefit is suddenly their CD4, CD8 count started to change. Suddenly their viral loads started to change. And this other miraculous thing happened and he's like, what the hell am I seeing here? There is a direct link that the immune system is responding to this sort of short-term suppression of the opiates. Um, and then this upregulation of the endorphins. So this is like the, where it all started. So I'll take a breath and walk you through what's happened since then. But I want to see if there's some follow-up thoughts or questions of what I've shared so far. Well, I maybe had not understood or thought much about the connection to our own endogenous opiates receptors yeah. and our immune system. Uh, I mean, I guess when you feel good, you are healthier and perhaps more resilient. That makes sense to me, but the, that connection I had not seen before. And, but, but if I, if I hear you correctly, it's, it's the opening that is really the, the sort of more and most important element of this is that this this short term you know blocking and then that re-emerging is is the is the mechan mechanism of action that is kind of the special sauce. That's a really great way to put it, and it's it's really fascinating because he takes it a little bit further because you'll see today most subscribe or prescribers of low dose naltrexone most of us will prescribe it at nighttime. Okay. And this is what's very interesting. I didn't know this until I was going back to actually prepare for this call. Cause I was like, always wonder well, why, why did he choose the nighttime? You know, we've always just done it. I never really questioned it. And then when I read the why behind it, I was blown away, which is that 90% of, and I'll just read directly from him. So I love how he put this 90% of the endorphins endogenous that we make inside of us are made in the middle of the night between two and 4am in the morning. So if you're taking this at bedtime or an hour or so before bed, you've now shut that down. And then a few hours later, when they start to pop off those receptor sites, 
your own endogenous start to be in circulation. And now they have all these receptors to play with, which then maintains this beautiful endorphin high all through the rest of the next day. Mm. Very interesting, specific to its implications in mental, emotional health, pain management, you know, and, and addiction person, like addictive personalities, like suddenly you're not needing to reach for the exogenous, you know, things to feed the, feed the sugar craving, feed, feed the sex addiction, feed the heroin addiction, whatever it is, suddenly there's like this natural endorphin high that's happening um, inside the body. So I thought, well, that was really interesting. And, and so there's that piece that kind of emerged from what he learned at that time. And so I just think that's pretty wild, but something really even more wild is we now can go through, this is all thanks to Bihari and others work in the immunology world and the kind of chronic illness world, but there are three conditions that are really well, actually more, but three main conditions that are very, very well associated with low endorphin levels. And I don't know, Sean, if you know, or if you've looked into that yourself, what they are or have a if guess. I, yeah. If I was going to guess what leads to low endorphin, I mean, I would, um, stress. Like yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Chronic stress, chronic inflammation. Um, um, yeah, poor sleep. Yeah. I don't know. No, you're nailed. Like all the, like the, why we end up with endorphin imbalance. I think you're nailing. It's like kind of circadian rhythm imbalances, inflammation, I think is one of the big, big, big ones that you just hit upon here. Um, and just the stress and its implications on the suppression of the immune system and just the sort of signaling pathways, but the three main disease states that are associated with low endorphins, anxiety, so there's that, right? Like there's a, a, a stress response gone amok, right? Migraine. Interesting. Huh. Enough, this is a big one. And IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. Think about the uh, gut brain. Gut brain. Yeah. All of this, right? So that's really fascinating. And then of course, AIDS and HIV soon it became, we learned in the eighties and into the nineties that they too are low endorphin disease states. And so that to me is a super just a fascinating thing to consider that that plagues a lot of our population. And some studies would say that our population, upwards of 70% of our population is actually endorphin deficient. Mm. Is it no wonder that the longevity in the United States is the only longevity in the world that's actually lowering where everybody else is at least stable or improving? And the two causes of that, which should probably give you a clue to this conversation even further, and the implications is... Our longevity is going away because of opiate overdose and suicide. Mm. So I just think we're dealing with like a, you know, the scientists call it an era of despair, but I also wonder about an era of endorphin deficiency. And I think you nailed it on some of the drivers of that. And it's not difficult to get your circadian rhythm out of whack and your inflammatory processes, you know, over the top. It makes sense. Again, that makes sense to me because, you know, the nutrient quality of our food is depleted, um, yeah. covered in glyphosate. So our diets are poor, which leads to poor gut health, you know, bad, lots of bad bacteria, very little good bacteria. And, and so that, you know, could very easily connect to ir irritable bowel syndrome. IBS, yeah. you know, looks, looks a lot of different ways for some people. It's indigestion for some people. It's, you know, disaster pants every day, all day. <laughs> yep. yep. Uh, so yep. like that, that makes sense to me. And, and if, and now, and we know that 
you know, some of our personality or our mood comes from our gut health. That, that just, that makes so much sense to me. Wow. Oh my right? gosh. I know it's like stewing in that one for a while. It's yeah. So yeah. Uh, did you say era of despair? Is that a term that that's that being is. used now widely? It is era of despair. That's what the scientists are calling our loss of longevity secondary to, so, to suicide and opiate overdose. Spe- like yeah. specifically in the West here? Very wow. specifically. And in oh the United God. States, very specifically. So that should, th- those should be clues like why not other Western developed nations? Why are, why are they not experiencing the same levels of suicide and um, overdose as we are here in the United States? What, what, what's, what, do you th- what do you think? What are some of your thoughts there? Well, we're one of the few countries still left not banning glyphosate. I think you brought that up, which completely dismantles your gut, you know, your gut barrier completely, uh, you know, creates major hormone uh, endocrine disruption, uh, completely dismantles our gut brain barrier and really depletes our immune system. And so I think there's that piece. And then we also are, if you look at some of the food additives, if you even look at a few of the major brands of certain foods and you look at them here, how they're manufactured in the United States, and even how they're manufactured, say in Italy, you'll see that a lot of the ingredients are not the same. Yeah. Right. And you hear people talking all the time about, well, I can somehow eat this when I'm traveling in Europe versus here in the United States. When you put those, like, I don't know, I'm just using an example, like Nabisco shredded wheat. I don't even know if that's the thing, but you put them next to each other. You will see like in the United States, we're allowed to use brominated flour. They're not allowed to use that in Europe, you know, and other examples where we're using certain food additives, certain food colorings, um, certain uh, starches or flavorings that are not utilized or are actually banned in other parts of the world. So I do think because we have such a vulnerable gut now because of um, glyphosate being basically insidious in our environment, ubiquitous in our environment now, um, I think that that may have something to do with it. But it's, there's that. And I just think that we are, we're kind of just a culture that I don't know, like we, we, and I, I live in Mexico now, so I can sort of say this from across the border, but I travel over the world extensively and there is a different way of living, you know, in, in, in how we like, everything is so go, 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 push, 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 uh, create, you know, like make, do, do, do in the United States. And yet so many other cultures and communities have such a different kind of manana attitude and there's just a little less intensity of stress um out there so i don't know i don't know will we ever have the answers i don't know but there's definitely a lot of differences culturally that likely have some influence this week's episode is brought to you by BioPro plus i cannot tell you how much this product has changed my life and so many of the lives of my clients and you listeners it's also saved my butt during 75 hard BioPro Plus is the faster, easier, and safer non-synthetic alternative to painful, expensive, and invasive anti-aging and hormone treatments. Before you do TRT, before you start taking a bunch of herbs that may not make you feel the way that you want to feel, you should try this. You can go to bioproteintech.com and use the code OPP for $30 off. You know, you know that a sponsor is a hit when people who have purchased it reach out to me and say, holy cow, Sean, I tried this and it's amazing. It's blowing my mind. It makes me better at everything that I do. I love having sponsors like this that really make a difference in people's lives. And this product is, it's absolutely incredible. It's growth factors and amino acids that will help you 
improve your hormones, become better at everything that you want to do. So go bioproteintech.com and use the code OPP for $30 off. Where it's pre- it's pressure, right? I mean, so much, so much pressure from the moment you wake up and look at your phone and check how many people liked your yeah. picture of your food last night to the moment you go to bed looking at your phone and watching, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer before you go to sleep, right? Like, I mean, it it makes sense. And and you know this as well as I do, is that so many of us are redlining, just redlining every day, all day, getting poor sleep, constantly, constantly, constantly for months, years, decades. And so what do you think is going to be the result of that? Like, you know, not 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 feeling good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Go ahead. Well, it's just, it's, you know, saying that it's like, it's interesting because one of the other pieces I talked about earlier, that sort of anywhere, depending on the study is 88 to 93% of Americans and likely people in westernized environments are now metabolically unstable, metabolically broken. And this emerging field of metabolic uh, psychology or psychiatry out there, this is the other difference as well, is that we're all a bunch of sugar junkies, right? And so we went from five pounds of sugar per person per year, pre-industrial food revolution in the mid 1800s to, again, depending on the study, you know, anywhere from 145 pounds to 175 pounds of sugar per person per year. How, how can we adapt in such a short period of time effectively? And so one of the things when I talk about the mechanism of action here coming up is one of the pathways that the LDN directly is associated with is the PIK3CA pathway, the PIK3CA, which is a, a kinase pathway that is interesting in that we're finding its relationship to immune function, cancers, but very specifically, it is the main pathway of all of our metabolic functionings. So it's related to our insulin response. It's related to our the way we are, you know, our, our, our insulin spikes, our insulin growth factor, the MAPK, are we overfed and undernourished? You know, all of these pieces, mTOR, it's related in those all those pathways about how now we're all walking around constantly in an overfed and undernourished state that is also leading to this level of metabolic inflexibility. And there are even really brilliant psychiatrists and foundations that they're doing research to show that mental illness, including suicidal ideations and extreme depression that can lead to opioid overdoses and suicide are very linked to our metabolic health. And so is it no wonder that we're actually looking at an off-label use of a, of a prescription that can change that expression and help people make that bridge over that might allow them to have sort of that inner wherewithal to make the lifestyle and dietary changes necessary to Mm. hold that, you know, hold what it is they achieve. It's not like the pill will fix it, but it will certainly give them a, another sense of self that maybe they've lost somewhere along the way. That is so important. That's such a key point. And, and I'm fascinated by what you just said there, because it's one thing to know theoretically uh, 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 how a, a prescription will help you. It's one thing to know that if you cut out sugar, then you will your life will get better. Yeah. The first four days are gonna suck. The seventh uh-huh. day is gonna be like you know a- among <laughs> the worst days in your life. Exactly. Like you're gonna feel like garbage, guaranteed. But then day eight, day nine, you're going to feel like a kid again. Like it's one thing to know that, but it's a whole other thing to have the internal ability 
to have the enthusiasm for it, to have the 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 commitment to it, the the psychology that is the gap for so many people. And and everyone's guilty of this. We all yeah. dork out on a thing and then never do anything about it. We love whatever your thing is or or sexy tools. Yeah. 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 Yeah, It's they're great. But if you don't have the, if the enthusiasm, like (laughs) enthusiasm, and that's like, my brand is like enthusiasm, like, yeah, super (laughs) like it it works. It helps everywhere. It it improves your life. It makes you a happier person. But if you don't have the enthusiasm to follow through on the thing that you know will help you, then it's all for naught. It stays in your head and never gets activated on. Oh, that's huge. And that's huge. I think that's just it is that there is, there's like this, it's like we've lowered the bar that people have like a a lack of bliss or a lack of, you know, so three questions always ask patients for what are you grateful for? What brings you joy? And what did you come here to do? And the, and the people and patients who can't answer those questions or don't have access to act to their joy or um, gratitude and don't really have a passion and purpose, frankly, they don't do as well as other people who have those things. And it's not even so much about what tool was used. It's like, what's that inner fortitude about. And so something like this, when you have people who've been dealing in a chronic low endorphin environment, or even interesting, there's a relationship, we could have a whole different conversation on this, but endocannabinoid system and endorphin system are intimately connected. And so we'll mention this in just a moment of how the two can support each other. The LDN and even cannabis can be of of impact of helping people titrate back up their brain-derived neurofactors and their their bliss points, their, you know, all these different moments within their body. But that is, it's like, even when people are getting, doing all the right things, but they just can't bump up through that spot, it's, it will do, it will complete. And that's why people can lead to opiate overdose and suicide is because it's like, what's the purpose? I feel nothing. I'm numb or I'm, it's so dark. I don't see another way out. And this is why people are reaching for, you know, these other crutches. Some of them, thank God, good crutches, right? We're kind of starting to move people in that direction, but it's interesting. Dr. Bihar, you know, he died in 2010 prior to kind of the, I guess, sort of the big launch or the big movement in biohackers. And I feel like the biohacking world, which you play in a lot, you know, from your posts and whatnot that I see, talk to a lot of these folks at that time, Dr. Bihari thought there were only three things that could actually um, raise your endorphin levels exogenously, exercise, acupuncture, and low dose naltrexone. Now I've seen and use all those things, by the way. So I, I'm, I'm also a doctor in oriental medicine. So I, acupuncture has been integral to my practice. Um, exercise, definitely all, we all know, everyone kind of knows exercise and endorphins go hand in hand. Um, and then the low dose naltrexone piece, I started seeing that. But I also think in the more modern eras, we found some other ways to do this. You've got a ton of them on your Instagram page. So cold plunges, right? Cold right, plunge, right, right, Yeah. Yeah, right. Like, uh, you know, uh, some plant-assisted, living inquiry. So psychedelics in certain uh, proper environments, um, fasting, prayer, meditation, sunshine, you know, sunshine, exactly. <laughs> Grounding, earthing, plugging back in. You know, like these are, these are the things we're emerging that are those places to elevate our mood. And so it's just super interesting to me about this piece. But before we move on to that, what's really wild is in my world of oncology, I started seeing studies early on, early 2000s, mid, you know, like 2003, four, five, which are a lot of studies started coming out showing that opiate, if patients were put on an opiate at the time of their cancer surgery, that they had a worse outcome. So 
You're like, shit, isn't everyone who goes through surgery for their cancer put on an opiate at some point? Likely, right? If I'm lucky enough to get someone before that, we go, we work with the anesthesiologist, we work with their pharmacogenomics, we understand who they are, what they've got going on to know to avoid opiates at all costs, if at all possible. Um, because what happens with taking opiates, even, I mean, in any environment, so when we're taking our tramadol, our fentanyl, our codeine, you know, our, whatever we're taking for opiates, for pain management of any kind, we're suppressing our immune system. That's a really big deal, especially if you're dealing with a cancer. So when people are coming in to do surgery for their cancer, you need your immune system working on all cylinders to be able to fight this. That is really important. And yet, it will drive worse outcomes in these patients. So we want to get them off of these drugs. There's actually multiple studies that show that not only does it suppress the immune system, it actually increases progression and cellular proliferation of the cancer cell. So there's a relationship there. And this is where some of the um, future, like current and future studies of low-dose naltrexone are coming in. But when I first was exposed to low-dose naltrexone, I was still in medical school in the late 90s. I met Dr. Bihari. He came and did like a symposium for HIV and AIDS. And we learned how to use this in our environment to both treat the, the viral infection of HIV, but to also help with the addictions and the mental emotional sides of things. But we also saw a lot of cancers in these patients as well as autoimmune conditions and saw those things all improving. So by the time I got out in private practice in the early 2000s, I already knew its utility in the AIDS and HIV world. And I continued that work for another decade in my career there, but I also started using it in everything and everybody autoimmune rheumatoid arthritis, MS, ankylosing spondylosis, you know, like Hashimoto's, unbelievable. You'd think I had a magic wand. It was so incredibly life-changing for folks. And the irony of it is I had dealt with autoimmune issues my entire life. I did not personally start on this medication until 2014. Mm. I should have started on it in 2000, right? When I was starting to apply it to my patients going through that. Talk about the game changer, Sean. So in my own PCOS, endometriosis, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, celiac disease, and rheumatoid arthritis are my little collections of autoimmune conditions that people likely wouldn't know I carry. But when I'm on that low-dose naltrexone, um, even all these years later, I don't really notice if I skip it for a couple of days or a couple of weeks, but I certainly noticed it when I walked the Camino for my 50th birthday last year, mm. <laughs> I forgot my low dose naltrexone for five weeks and I was almost crippled at the end of it. My ankles, I hadn't had a flare of rheumatoid arthritis in well over a decade. So I was humbled to the core to realize it's still integral to my own immune system because I'm, I'm wired in a way that I have just all these propensities from my epigenetics and unless I'm absolutely ritualistic with my dietary and lifestyle, then I'll flare. And so because I was traveling and walking, you know, anywhere from 12 to 16 hours a day with a 22 pound backpack up and down mountains, um, my body was not on a routine of any kind. And I was, I was being pretty abusive to it. It was mm. awesome at the same time, but those are the humbling things. And then later I started learning about the utility of this amazing medication in cancer. And that's where, because my history, I'm 31, almost 32 years out from stage four ovarian cancer. Um, I started re reading the research about this as a medication that could induce apoptosis ovarian, of ovarian cancer cells. 
And so started really working with this in my cancer patient population. And what we learned is that for cancer specifically, you want to dose this more like three days on, three days off and take a day break to help the immune response, which is going to start to downregulate inflammatory cytokines. It's going to impact whole-like receptors. It's going to impact um, natural killer cells and the other immune workings and modulation of the immune system. And so when you are pulsing it like that, you actually get much more bang for your buck in the cancer population. Whereas someone with ongoing, just using it maybe for addiction or for autoimmunity, they probably want to stay on it all the time. Hmm. Yeah. Is it, it, it almost sounds too good to be true. I mean, it, I it, it I really know. does. And, and, and I, and I have to imagine that that elicits the haters and the skeptics and, and the fact that I read somewhere that it's like a dollar a day and that it's, I mean, is that, is that even close? Yeah. It's about a, it's about a dollar a pill, about a dollar a day. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, uh, of course, if you've read any of my stuff, you understand the sort of leaning towards skepticism and, you know, conspiracy awareness, <laughs> not just theories, <laughs> awareness. Yep. And and so I have to think that a a medication as widely applicable as uh, clinically proven yep. and as affordable as low-dose yep. naltrexone must yep. come with some pretty serious pushback. And so, I mean – you're yeah. not, you've said yes, of course, but like, yeah. like it is yeah. right. Like, is it suppressed? It's, it's great. So in my own town where I had a private practice for 17 years and used this medication for all of those 17 years and had to find all of my underground railroad access to it. Cause I was a naturopath in a state that was unlicensed, did not have prescription rights. We got creative on how we found this. It took me 17 years to convince our local rheumatologists to use this and now she acts like she invented it. And I'm totally down with that. Like, I don't care as long as patients are getting help. She's the first to recommend this for her patients now. And it took that, it took someone having an end of one experience for themselves or for a patient that it was so compelling that nothing else worked, that even if it was just placebo, they're like, screw it, I'll do placebo, whatever it takes. So it took a long time to drip this into my little tight-knit community, um, even with hundreds, if not thousands of patients on it, it still took that. So imagine what it's like in less progressive environments and more conservative institutions. The good news is that there are like Linda Elsagood of the LDN Research Trust.org group and others. There's now three books, you know, a three-part series that Linda helped get out there, a nonprofit book that got out there to help perpetuate the research and the awareness of this. There's documentary on this. There's gajillions of case studies on this. There's entire symposiums on this that are happening annually all over. Like we know this is effective and it does come across that way, but we also understand to your point, no one wants the $1 fix when you've got a bio, let's just use the example of autoimmune conditions. So a biologic like Humira or something can be anywhere from a couple thousand to tens of thousands of dollars a month for the injection. So they're not really excited to scooch over and make way for a drug like low-dose naltrexone, which, you know, three months supply is 90 bucks. You know, it's like, Come on. And, and in some places, even cheaper, right? But that's kind of the average. And so you know, my, pers my prescription is, uh, is $90 um, for three months supply. So that's, that's how that goes. So you're right, we're up against this. But let me just, let me just walk you through because I, I made a couple notes to make sure. 
Yeah. Everyone hears because these are the things you could easily go into PubMed, put in low dose natural. The other, let me start by this first. My favorite is when a doctor says, you're not an addict. You don't need this drug. That's almost always what they'll say to a patient hmm. first. Like, well, I'm working, you're, you're not an addict and you're, you don't, you're not taking it at the dosage that we would give to an addict. You're using it as an off-label drug and a lower dose um, that has to be compounded as a lower dose. You can't just like cut a 50 milligram pill in half and quarters and tenths, like that's not going to apply. <laughs> right. And so you've got to go about this, but they just, they just have that misunderstanding, you know, kind of like the world of ketogenic diet. Like everyone's like, Oh, ketoacidosis. They're like, no, <laughs> don't get your words mixed up here. Yeah. This is what happens here. But just that simple reminder here that it's this at the low dose binds to the opiate receptor causes a rebound increase in the endorphins when it wears off. It increases then the sensitivity to existing endorphins in the endogenously in your body. And it increases the number of receptors to capture even more. So you can see that it starts to kind of build a, a, you know, a, a new network, just like what we're doing with a lot of different things we're doing for like nootropics and whatnot to build these new networks. We're doing that at the opiate level, which is pretty interesting to me. Specifically, where the research has shined is in the downregulation of inflammatory cytokines, such as interleukin-8 and interleukin-6, really easy to test for that pre and post in patients. C-reactive protein is a good surrogate for that. We see that all the time. It increases natural killer cells and T-cells, also easy to see. You can run basic blood tests on that as well. It stimulates mucosal and tissue healing. So I've used it a lot in patients with like diabetic ulcers or poor to heal wounds. And we can see that, especially if you pair that with something like hyperbaric oxygen, pretty damn cool, right? Um, it directly inhibits tumor growth. There's been a lot of really cool studies, non-small cell lung carcinoma, breast cancers, ovarian cancer, gastro cancers. Um, a lot of those have had a lot of good research with low-dose naltrexone in addition to their standard of care. And then it's very specifically having a very powerful impact on um, the, the death of neurons, the oligodendrocytes in the brain. So it's about helping prevent that die-off of the myelin sheath and the protective aspects of our central nervous system, which is huge. And that neurodegeneration is the fastest growing chronic illness that plagues us today. So that is probably say, saying we should be looking at this, but here's that another leap again. Uh, the, the, con the connection to our um, metabolic health, we now call um, Alzheimer's type three diabetes for crying out loud. So again, it's like, where's sugar playing in this? So I'm always planting that seed for your listeners to realize that please don't just go take the pill and still eat your Twinkies, like do more. Um, but the specific mechanism of action, it, it, it impacts um, binds to toll-like receptors, which are effect basically involved in every inflammatory and immune system pathway. So that's why when you said, is this sort of a panacea? In some ways, yes. Now I would say clinically, my experience has been that probably 80% of patients have a good response to this. There are always outliers, right? In every single thing. Um, and that's, that's just to be expected in anything, but to still get such like almost a, a home run. I mean, there's nothing in, in standard of care that could offer that same impact mm -hmm. on a lot of these conditions. So that's pretty cool. Um, and then it has been studied extensively in multiple sclerosis, ALS, Parkinson's, chronic fatigue syndrome, you know, all those myelo, you know, um, demyelinating disease processes. So that's really huge. It's also um, 
really, really a big one. I think I've seen a lot of benefit from my patients dealing with glioblastomas because it also impacts the glial cell inflammation in general, which are the cells that are involved in that type of cancer. So you can see it's got far reaching implications. And the beauty is it's not contraindicated with standard of care. Mm. One caveat though, it will block if you need an opiate, if you are someone who's taking it for whatever reason, it will block your response to that opiate. Now there are LDN experts out there in pain management environments that they're putting patients on extremely, extremely low, low, low dose, like 0.025 micrograms of LDN to actually help them tone their response to the opiates again, for those Mm. who've reached that threshold, because you know, it can be easily create tolerance. So it's used in that environment to help with tolerance, you know, and it's also used in the environment to help wean people off of those drugs safely and effectively. So there is utility in this, even in that environment, but you want to go to someone who's really skilled in that. And um, in those three books, there's a couple chapters in each of them that talk about this abuse of when and how to utilize it with people taking opiates. But for the most part, there are no contraindications. There You'll hear a few people say you should probably be careful with using this in folks going on a checkpoint inhibitor in the cancer world, which are drugs like Keytruda, Opdivo, um, Yervoy. Um, but I use those all. The, I use LDN all the time in those patients that use those drugs. In fact, I find that the immune modulating impact of low dose naltrexone is what makes those standard of care immune therapies in cancer work even better because those drugs over 80% of the time are going to cause pretty significant harm um, to the patient. They cause extreme autoimmune reactivity because it Mm. upregulates TH1. LDN is modulating to that. And so if you bring them together and you know what you're doing with them, you can actually enhance the standard of care immune therapy without knocking the patient for a loop simultaneously. Wow. A lot. That's a lot of things. No, that that's 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 what we're here for. That's so that's so many things. And um, so as people, you know, for people listening now, there who are thinking, "Oh, that's me," or "Oh, that's my cousin," uh, or "That's my husband or wife." I want to give people, you know, typically we do this kind of at the end, but, but I want to make it actionable for people. You know, you've, you've, you've said that, you know, if you go in and ask for it, ask your doctor about it, then they're going to say, well, you're not, you're not an addict, but I think people are going to do one of two things. They're, they're going to go down the LDN rabbit hole online because, you know, the listeners of this podcast are motivated or they're, or they're going to ask, they're going to ask their doctor about it. So where, where would we send people to go to learn more and how should they ask their doctor about it? I love that. So a couple of things is that, that, you know, again, an empowered patient is a dangerous patient. And I mean that in the best way possible right? They're dangerous to their condition, not to themselves. <laughs> and so we, we want that, but you can easily go in and just say, Hey, I've done some research. I want to um, access something that's low cost, generally well-tolerated um, and low risk to you and me and low interaction risk with anything I'm taking. I'd like to try this off-label drug, low-dose naltrexone at a, at a dose that's low enough that is utilized as an immunomodulating therapy. Now, when you say that, and if you put it in some form or fashion like that, your doctor is going to, first of all, be like, 
okay, I really can't argue with that because the patient is smarter than I am. But <laughs> so that's good because you're coming in very respectful and just saying, hey, I learned about this and here we go. Um, you can also on the load ldnresearchtrust.org, there's actually like a, a little kind of paper that you can take into your doctor and say, here you go. This is what I want. And it explains very methodically of exactly what is this? What is it typically used for? What are the, what's the research? You know, what's the references for this? And when patients have done that, I would say nine times out of the 10, the doctor's like, whatever, right? Whatever. Like they don't, they, they either don't believe in it at all. Um, or, you know, or like, uh, I'll just, I'll just do it just to get you out of my office. That's mm -hmm. okay. Because the beauty is that if you have one doctor who's like, absolutely not, it's time for you to get a new doctor. There's right. that much evidence out there. If you have one that's like just lukewarm, like, eh, whatever, great. That's, you can hold on to that doctor. But I'm going to tell you, probably one of the most well-researched, understood, and supported off-label drugs today is low-dose naltrexone. So unless they're really living under a rock in the cancer world, in the immunology world, in the... Um, in like kind of the pain management world, uh, they're likely exposed to it or have had other patients expose them to it. So you can pretty, I think you could feel pretty good that this one isn't going to be completely thrown out. Um, also on that website, tons of free articles, um, like whole sections of like whatever question you might have, is this good for, you know, I don't know, scleroderma, you will type in, you'll see an entire like menu of, of articles you could go down the rabbit hole on and research and information. I mentioned the three books, there's a three part series on books, and they're all about different conditions and case studies and research and where the research is going um, for low dose naltrexone. So there's that all of those are available on all of your typical book vendors. And then the other cool thing on the LDN Research Trust is that um, org is they have a list of prescribing practitioners who mm. are willing to have their names put on this website, meaning they're willing to have a consultation with you to get you prescribed if, you're, if your local doctor won't do it. And that's pretty helpful. That, that is great. Yeah. When, when, I, when it came up twice with my coaching clients and both of them were like, it's, it's not good for it's not good for, you know, the Western medical industrial complex. This, this, this thing is hard. It's hard to find. It's hard to access. A lot of people who are outspoken about it, you know, get a lot of heat for it. And obviously immediately I'm like, Oh, then there's something there, right? Like, <laughs> exactly. oh, like yeah. <laughs> this must work. This must be really effective. And yeah. Oh, it's cheap. Oh, and it's not yeah. contraindicated. And it's like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. That's really helpful. And um, so then let's maybe, let's maybe, uh, shift the conversation a little bit. Um, well, maybe before we do that, is there anything else that, that people should know? Like, let's just say someone's listening and they're like, man, I've been kind of in a funky mood for a while. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. the last three years have, have been put us all tough, in a funky mood. Yeah, yeah. A lot of funk. People are in some <laughs> funk and they say, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to take an, an SSRI and I don't want to, you know, I'm not, I don't know about nootropics and, you know, chamomile tea and stuff. Could, could they, is that a good enough reason? If they're, if they're moody and, and not yeah. sleeping well, and they're having some dark thoughts, like, is that a good enough reason for them to explore this and, and ask for it by name by, by a doctor? So Here's how I would do it. If, if As a savvy consumer and as a practitioner, these would be the places that I would not, without hesitation, prescribe this. Someone dealing with cancer, 
someone dealing with autoimmunity, someone dealing with an immunocompromised system, such as long hauler syndrome. Hmm. Let's just throw that little, let's just throw that bomb into the mix here. There we go. So very powerful. There's actually been some very interesting studies about low-dose naltrexone with COVID and long hauler syndrome. So I think that would be very significant conversations to have. Obviously, AIDS, HIV, or people who've been on major immunosuppressive drugs for whatever reason. Right. So that might be the conversation. Those who are dealing with kind of more of this darkness and low mood, they likely do have endorphin deficiency, especially if they have anxiety, IBS, migraines. But I would start more at the biohacking places there first. You've mm. got to still do the fundamentals if you're still up. So remember what I said earlier, your endogenous endorphins are picking up momentum and doing their thing between 2 and 4 a.m. If you're up at a rave at that time, if you're in front of the computer screen, if you're a night owl and that's when you're awake, you are literally effing your endorphin system left and right. It doesn't happen any other time of day or night, right? So that is the window. You please go to bed, right? Please, please. Whatever it's going to take for you to do that. Interestingly enough, LDN can help with that, but but that's where you want to start first. Like get the fundamentals. Don't go yeah. seek the pill to fix that. Right. And after you've done, like maybe you've done some, you know, some, uh, you know, high, like some high inten intensity interval training. You've done a little bit of, of uh, meditation. You've done some cold plunges. Um, then perhaps if you're like, wow, I'm still kind of having this, ugh, like I'm not breaking through that bliss factor zone, then I think it's absolutely worth having a conversation and, and more specifically making sure that you're also properly chirohydrate restricting or time restricted weed eating so that you can give your body and your um, metabolic system the opportunity to right itself, repair itself so that everything else can flow, including your endorphin and endocannabinoid system. So yeah, that's, that's a big one that you've done all the right things and it's still not better. That would definitely be the time to reach out for it in that environment. That's greatly helpful. That's, that's, that's awesome. Um, that I love, you gave us so many great little solutions. If, if you, if you missed any of that, dear listener, go back and listen to that again. Um, because she just gave you really important information that you can, that you can, that will inform your research and also, you know, help you help you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I, I definitely want to talk about, um, metabolic, uh, approach to cancer. I definitely want to talk about that because I think that it's just, it's just flat out, even in the biohacking community, it's just not talked about enough. Um, yeah. before we do that, I would love if you're open to it for us to go a little bit into the deep water. Oh gosh. Um, yeah. And, 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 and again, feel free. I'll, you know, I can edit, I can edit this part out. If, <laughs> you, won't, you won't even hear this, you know, do it, let's do it. <laughs> but, um, for people concerned about vaccine injuries, um, mRNA genetic treatment injuries, yep. what I I keep getting asked from friends and coaching clients about potential detox protocols that yeah. they can do because they got one, two, three, four jabs and yeah. they're 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 nervous now because they're seeing the headlines. They're reading between the lines. Maybe they follow me on Instagram and they're like, okay, now I'm starting to get a little bit worried. Do, do you, do you have any thoughts or any solutions or any feelings about, um, what people can do who are multi-jabbed or singular yeah. jabbed? Yeah. Or simply had a bad reaction to the virus itself. And so let's talk about that for a moment. Like there's sort of this bowl that all of those fit into. 
So the viral exposure, the jabs exposure, the um, booster exposure, right? Or even the microRNA treatment after someone's landed in the hospital with something. All of those kind of go into the same big melting pot. And I say that because very simply put, both the virus and the sort of treatment for prevention of the virus are impacting the same receptor, the ACE receptors. Okay. So a lot of your listeners might go, oh, I've heard that some that this is making sense to me. Well, a lot of people might be aware of the concept of the ACE inhibitor drugs, which are often used in our hypertensive community and our, our high blood pressure folks. If you yourself or anyone that you know is on an ACE inhibitor drug, right then and there, you know, these people are going to have a problem <laughs> with the virus, with the injection and the long hauler effects, because that receptor is already in trouble. Okay. So that's one thing to keep in mind. Like I wish we would have, cause we knew pretty early on that the ACE receptor is what was causing wreaking havoc in all of this, which was what leads to like, think about your ACE receptor as everything in the body, like all the endothelial linings of all of your organs, in particular, your vasculature, your heart, your lung, your kidneys. So there's one big place that shows up. The other big place that it shows up is in our um, reproductive organs and in our lymphatic system. So there's a lot of ACE receptors there as well. And then there's a lot of ACE receptors in our brain. So like how hypertension can affect your brain and headaches and whatnot. Like these should kind of make sense. It's like, think about like the linings of everything inside of you has some ACE response. So in knowing that the way we then have this, this infection that likes to target those and when we know that an ACE inhibitor drug, the biggest population that those drugs are prescribed in, I, I bet you could guess what that patient profile might look like. So yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No. Like, so hypertension, obesity, diabetes, metabolic, metabolic, metabolic. So right then and there, you're like, ooh, there's a vulnerability that's here. So if you have a patient that's also diabetic on an ACE inhibitor, they're kind of effed. Like there's like, oh my God, they're going to have the worst ride on either side of the journey of this. So the other thing that's happening is we're seeing a lot of vulnerability in our younger populations with regards to their uh, fertility um, and their cycles or menstrual cycles being really impacted. And I personally, because I, I train physicians all over the world, I've trained 160 physicians in 16 countries. We've got 30 four new ones in a current cohort. We do two cohorts a year. We're all collecting these studies, by the way. Someday we'll, we'll, we'll um, publish when there's not a big target on our backs and we can have these conversations, but we're collecting the data. And among us, we've already been able to document well over two dozen uh, like uh, late stage of, uh, miscarriages. Like we're talking into the third try miscarriages, um, women who were um, had been in menopause for several years and suddenly start bleeding again. Um, new cancers out of nowhere suddenly they're like, oh, I have a breast cancer on the right side of my breast, and that's the side where I got my vaccine, and my lymphatic system is all congested there. There's studies about its impact on the CA125, which is a marker for ovarian cancer, its impact on PSAs, the prostate antigens. Um, so we're seeing this in my world all the time with regards to cancer, endocrine disruption, and sort of cardiovascular metabolic health. So I say all of that because this comes back to what we started to talk about the LDN earlier. You still have to deal with the fundamentals. If you don't get somebody metabolically healthy, they will not overcome long haulers. They will not be able to detox the jab, they will not be able to be more resilient towards the virus or any other viruses that come their way. So that's very important. 
Number two, there are some really cool things coming out about what can be done to help detoxify this. There's protocols by a lot of really well-known influencer or physicians that are out there. But again, I'm the person, I don't do protocols, I do the N of one. So I want to understand what's making that patient tick. So I'm looking at their inflammatory markers, I'm looking at their metabolic markers, their insulin, C-peptide, hemoglobin A1C, I'm looking at their C-reactive protein sedimentation rate, LDH, I'm looking at their coagulation markers. This is a big one, you guys. This is probably the biggest one. Folks who've had the virus or the long hauler syndrome or the reactions to the vir viral that the vaccine for it tend to have high fibrinogen activity, elevated D-dimers, and a lot of coagulopathy, so a lot of thick, sticky blood patterns, and they're tenacious. So my typical go-tos of like natokinase and lumbricate, they're just not enough. Even heparin isn't touching it, which is low molecular weight heparin, which is a pharmaceutical blood thinner, right? We're having a heck of a time. Aspirin doesn't touch it. Nothing. Megadoses of fish oil doesn't touch it. The only thing I've seen really do a good job. Now, sometimes you can, sometimes these things, diet, lifestyle, et cetera, can, but sometimes we need something more. And I've seen really interesting outcomes. And I'd love to see more studies around it of molecular hydrogen water. Mm -hmm. I've seen some very interesting things of it breaking up that fibro fibrosis. So I'd love for you to get someone on here. I've got someone you could talk to about what they're seeing and what they've created and what we're now trying on a lot of our patients that will wow. get you. No, it's kick butt, right? Uh -huh. I love, I love uh, hydrogen rich water. I mean, I, it's, it, you, I feel it. I, I can 10, 15 minutes and I you know I've used the tablets and, yeah. you know, yeah. some other products and stuff like it's huge. I agree. And there's, what's cool is what we're seeing is people who are right there inhaling it. So ah. the tablet, I mean, you can see, you can see fibrinogen budge with the tablets and you can definitely see it with the molecular water, but where I've seen the biggest bang for the buck is in the nebulized hydrogen water. Wow. Me, right. Yes. Yeah. I know. So that's kind of fascinating. That's one that's getting my, the hairs on the back of my neck standing on end. Um, low dose naltrexone, high doses of melatonin, high doses of vitamin D. These are things that are about the immunomodulation aspect. So we're going after the coagulation, we're going after the rebooting of the immune system, and we're going after the metabolic health. So we're making sure that their um, A1C is under five, their insulin's under three, their C-peptide's under two, and that they're maybe bringing in a lot more intermittent fasting or a therapeutic ketogenic diet or time-restricted eating or some, there's a million roads to roam with regards to getting a carbohydrate restriction process going on. And then when we partner all of that, depending on if there was injury, from those, like an actual stroke or a clot or, or, in, you know, something that's really like a darkness, like a cloak of extreme fatigue, because it beats the crap out of your mitochondrial expression. Then we might look at, if they're not cancering, we might look at NAD. I've seen to be very helpful to reboot. There's something called synapsin. You guys have probably talked about it's a prescription of a combination of methyl B12 with NAD in a nasal spray, pretty powerful um, on that piece. And then hyperbaric oxygen can really change the perfusion because we treated this like a mechanical issue and we killed a lot more people by intubating them and doing mechanical pushing. And we created much more of those micro tears in that vulnerable endothelial tissue that I just described, which is all ACE related, um, when we should have been using hyperbarics, you know, zone therapies instead, because it was about perfusion, not circulation. And so getting the oxygen into the across cell membranes and into the right places. But when we are 93% of the West is metabolically broken, we don't perfuse well. 
We don't have very, our cell membranes become very rigid. They don't let the good stuff in and they don't take the bad stuff out. And so we are now at like a, a crossroad of being more vulnerable than ever to the toxicity of both the virus as well as the treatment for prevention of the virus than ever before. And those who ended up getting the virus, especially with some of those other vulnerabilities that they may be aware of or not, then end up in the long hauler, which really is about a full collapse of their mitochondrial functioning. And so we can actually do testing. We can actually do testing to know which part of your Krebs cycle is working. How do we manipulate it? Do you need ubiquinol or PQQ? Do you need um, an acetylcysteine? Do you need, you know, the B, you know, the methyl B vitamins? What, what do you need to help that? Do you need L-carnitine to help shuffle that fat across the cell membrane? It's not the same for everybody, right? We're all biochemically individual and we can actually test for that. And a good old test that can really tell us what's going on is an organic acids test. Mm. We can tell a lot what's going on there. You can do the expensive, like a mito swab or some of these others, but that one's a really inexpensive one to know. And then one thing for your listeners to remember is once you've had the infection or the treatment for prevention of the infection, you also reawaken all the other sleeping tigers, Lyme, CMB, Epstein-Barr, all of your other previous infections. It, it, they'll like, oh, We've been called for the party. So everybody comes out. That takes full advantage of that weakened immune system. All right. And so all of these pieces come together where you can understand that you can never treat just one bucket of it. It's incredibly system, a systems approach. That, that was the most thorough, varied, and, and, and specific sort of advice that I've seen anywhere for thinking about how people can uh, bounce back, what they should be looking for, bounce back either from the infection or from the treatment to the infection or the long hauler sort of effect. I mean, I, the, I, I really do appreciate that very deeply. It, you know, I, I've seen memes about, you know, pine pollen and and stuff like that but but really thinking the way that you just sort of boxed that up i think was was so helpful for people um and with the caveat that your metabolism matters and if you are 50 pounds overweight and metabolically broken that you it's time to quit sugar start fasting and get your get your metabolism on track again because that changes everything. Wow. That was really helpful. Thank you, Dr. Nasha. Thank you. You're so welcome. Yeah. Yeah. So then let's, let, speaking of meta, the, the metabolic sort of approach to cancer, and I know that you've, you've written a book about it and I'm like, yeah. we're going to, we're going to sandwich this in kind of here toward right. the end of this, this interview. Cool. But, um, but I do want to, I do want to spend mm -hmm. a little bit of time there and then we'll, and then we'll wrap up our conversation. Um, if you, if you could, if you could distill this, this, this years and years long work of the book yeah. that you published to sort of give us, what are some, maybe three, three key things we can start there. Three key ways that we can think about the connection between, uh, the metabolism and cancer. Sure. So just simply put, we were all born and we're, we were all evolved from being a hybrid engine. We were all meant to utilize certain energy sources, depending on what was available to us in our environment. So literally up until the industrial food revolution, there were times of the year we feasted and times of the year we fasted. And we did that for tens of thousands of years, right? Since all of evolution of humanity. Then when I mentioned before, we shifted from the industrial food revolution, suddenly food became more 
accessible and available and a higher carbohydrate intake. We also came up to refrigeration and transportation. So now we're all eating away from our seasonal local, you know, sources. And we're eating far, far and far away from our sources. We're also eating further and further away from our genetic matches. So um, those components have just led to a little bit of a, a vulnerability in these metabolic pathways of how effective or efficient we are at utilizing and metabolizing proteins and carbohydrates and fats. And we all have kind of our own little blueprint of how well we do that. And when our cells are healthy and functioning well, our bodies are able to sort of take out the garbage when we need to take out the garbage and um, process and utilize all the things we need to do on a daily basis just to keep us alive. But then something happens. It's known as a metabolic shift. So when those mitochondria become super overwhelmed, when we've gotten stuck in one particular burning of one particular fuel source for far too long, when we've taken on too many toxins into our mitochondrial bucket, we've got some major epigenetic influences from maybe several generations that kind of pass that on to us that made us a little more vulnerable. Even though we can change them, we might still be um, you know, not making the changes necessary. Maybe our microbiome is now trashed because of the glyphosate. Maybe our immune systems aren't working well because we're indoors all day and have no access to vitamin D. And we've all gotten so afraid of fat that we're no longer eating lard and butter, some of the best sources of vitamin D out there. Um, maybe our inflammation is just off the charts because we're over-exercising. That one always freaks people out, you know, because we're trying to do and be and look a certain way. It's like, okay, well, that's just as harmful to the body as sitting on the couch all day. Maybe our hormones are a hot mess because of all the things we just mentioned here. But now we might be complicating it further by putting exogenous hormones into the system, thinking we're going to fix it, but we're just actually clogging the works worse, especially if we have certain SNPs, single two nucleotide polymorphisms, that actually take that information in and boggle it up and then store it in the wrong places and turn on and off things that shouldn't turn on and off that can lead to problems. And then stress response, circadian rhythm imbalance, and mental emotional triggers and traumas, all of those drops in the bucket add up. And all of us have our own unique threshold. Cancer is no different. We all have cancer all of the time. There is no cure for cancer. Cancer is. It is us. It is an extension of us. It's what. It's when those cells start to go crazy, when they start to ignore the um, signals to die off when they should die off or to stay dormant or to uh, apoptose or whatever. When we stop listening to those endogenous signals and we are on our own, a lot of my colleagues call cancer cells like um, sociopaths, right? They, they go out of control, even killing their host with no regard, right? That is what happens here. So how do we start to think about that? And so much of that is around what is damaging the mitochondrial metabolic works. So all of those things I just mentioned have to be equally evaluated for and addressed to the individual. So when I mean, everyone's like, well, I do all the things I exercise and I eat right. And I do the thing and I still have cancer or people say to me, I was healthy until I got cancer. First of all, that is impossible. That is absolutely impossible. So my job over 30 years is to learn what makes each person express cancer in a particular way. And we evaluate for that. And then we know, okay, now we know where you came from. Now we know where you are in this morning. And now we know what we need to do to change this back. That's the metabolic approach to cancer that's about changing the, the information coming in and how it's being utilized and how it's being processed and removed from the body. Hmm. It's a lot. Well, that's, that's, that's not what I was expecting. That, uh, <laughs> I know a lot of people expected me to say something just about the Krebs cycle or just about ketones or whatever, but it's more than that because remember 
you, you're like sugars, sugar's one component, but if you don't sleep, your insulin is high. Mm-hmm. Right. So that messes with your sugar pathways. If you have high insulin, you typically have high cortisol. If you have high cortisol, you typically have high estrogen, like all these patterns, it all funnels in. So if you just go and go, I'm just going to suppress this one pathway, just going to put someone on ketones, you know, exogenous or put them on a ketogenic diet. Well, that's enough. But if you don't change everything else around it, that's not enough. Hmm. Right. Just like if someone comes in and says, oh, my thyroid's not working. So I'm just going to tune that up. If they don't deal with the adrenals, they don't deal with the gluten that's causing their Hashimoto's thyroiditis to begin with. They don't, you know, get into their own circadian rhythm or speak their truth or whatever it is that's causing issues or deal with the radiation exposures, the radon in their basement, right? Those things are also going to make the thyroid still not work well. And you could take all the thyroid hormone you want, but it's not fixing it. Right. This is, it's a different mindset that I'm trying to help people understand. We treat the terrain. We don't treat the tumor. Well, we support, we will treat the tumor, but fundamentally even treating the tumor is dependent on the terrain that that tumor is living in. Right. Right. It's unique to, it's unique to you and all of the the factors that, that came in to, to create it. Yeah. I, 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 see this connection between the way that I sort of think about biohacking and the way that I describe it, which is to control what to control and optimize what goes in you on (laughs) you and around you. And, and when you can figure out what should go in your mouth and when you can figure out what sort of uh, products and, and, you know, non-toxic detergents um, you know, what you smell, what aromas you are, you are, you know, the estrogenic chemicals that, yeah. that you're exposed that all of us are exposed to now all the time, when you can control for that, then you can start making changes and there's treatments and there's supplementation and medications. But, yes. but if you can get that stuff dialed in the stuff that you can control for, you know, um, then the treatments will work because then you're designing your lifestyle around these three things and, and and that that will make everything else that you do that much more effective uh i love yeah, that you that- put it that way because you know what you're putting in on and around you is so integral to your to how you express health or disease that's very right. important even down to the people that are around you right how you express disease so that's a a big one right and you'll be able to receive healing whether it's coming from standard of care chemo or surgery or radiation or off-label drugs or mistletoe or high dose vitamin c or a ketogenic therapeutic diet it still has to land in something that can receive it and so if you're in like sympathetic nervous system mode and you're running you're freaking out it has it's like it, it just bounces out of you and off of you. And so it's really important to, to bring in the whole conversation to this. And, um, you know, I, I tell you, I tell folks all the time, I feel like I've learned more about how to support people with cancer from the biohacker community in the last decade than I ever learned from my standard of care trainings or, or my, even my naturopathic or integrative or alternative trainings, because you guys are committed to sort of being curious and, and exploring and starting to leave the box and look at what makes things tick. And there's a lot of people in the biohacker community that come from worlds like IT and engineering where they're mm-hmm. systems makers. So medicine, the way we're trained in medicine, I don't care if you're a naturopath, I don't care if you're a chiropractor, I don't care if you're an acupuncturist, I don't care if you're an MD, you know, conventional oncologist, we're all taught very linear 
things and how we have to be trained to do this. And so you have to either be innately a systems thinker or become one Hmm. after you've gone through your tradition of tradition of training of choice in order to actually take a truly holistic and integrative approach to a patient, no matter the condition protocols will only cure you so far. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 All all these, all these N of one, you know, obsessive biohackers that understand like, well, what's borderline (laughs) narcissist? Like what? What's going to make my skin that look better, right? It pays off, right? Right. <laughs> right. Like I'm going to sip my, my collagen in ratios because I know that it makes me smarter and I'm going to, you know, vibrate my wrist with an Apollo because it makes me, you know, more open. But the fact is, is like when, when you do, because that has how you should think about your own health, that's how you should think about your own optimization and performance is like, <clears throat> what works for me, Right. What, what does my readiness score show me today? Like, well, I, I got trash sleep, so I probably shouldn't do powerlifting, you know, or whatever. Yes, like yes. That, that's important. And, and it is, and I, and I know that you share this, this idea with me that this is the future of medicine, that it, it is individualized. It is, it is specific and custom to you and not just you, but you now, not you yeah. 20 Thank years you. ago. Thank you. You now, right? Yeah. We're, we're, yeah. Awesome. Beautiful. Well, this, this is such, I, 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 I dig your style. I like your energy. I, I love this, the, the, the wisdom and, and, and everything that you're sharing, where can people, we've already given them some places they can go to do some digging on, on low dose naltrexone, but where can people find you and your book and all your stuff? Where do you want to send them on the internet? Let's send them to mtih.org. That's metabolic terrain Institute of health org or mtih.org. Either one will get you there. That will also segue you back to drnasha.com, which is sort of like just me and my speaking and some of my writings. But the, the big website, the mtih.org talks about the network of doctors and physicians we're training globally, talks about the patient advocates we're training globally on a metabolic approach to health and life and cancer, talks about the nonprofit integrative um, um, oncology hospital, metabolic hospital and research institute we're building in Southeast Arizona, and talks about ways that we are changing the world of health around us, um, um, not just in the United States, but globally. That's the mission and vision of this. So folks can read deeper in there, learn about the Metabolic Approach to Cancer book, learn about the Mistletoe and the Future of Integrative Oncology book. I've got a few, I've got a chapter or two in a various books all around there in Lotus Naltrexone, Volume 3, and the Noakes Foundation uh, nutrition textbook getting ready to come out this year. I wrote a, the chapter on fasting. Um, I speak globally all over the world at a lot of biohacker conferences, metabolic health conferences, keto conferences, um, low dose naltrexone conferences, mistletoe conferences. So I get around, I love this stuff. It's my passion, it's my purpose, and it's a joy to share it with like-minded individuals who also seem to have a deep understanding and appreciation of the terrain. So thank Mm. you. Well, my pleasure. Uh, I forgot to tell you that I have one more question, which is a okay. fill in the blank question. Oh boy! Spe- specifically to catch you off guard, and okay. this can be based on on really anything. This doesn't have to be specific to any of your areas of discipline or research. Um, but fill in the blank, and you can elaborate as much or as little as you wish. Everyone would benefit from knowing. Mm, wow, themselves themselves. Yes. Here, here. 
Dr. Yeah. Nisha, this has been such an awesome episode. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Optimal Performance Podcast. Yes. 